You're listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information about Vineyard Milwaukee Church, visit vineyardmilwaukee.com. Now here's this week's message. Good morning, Vineyard Milwaukee. Have you ever felt like you were at the end of yourself and yet expected to give more? Perhaps you were at the end of your financial resources, maybe at the end of your compassion, your patience, your courage, or even just your physical energy and yet someone's need was still before you? I reach the end of myself daily as a teacher. At the start of a day, I might be full of hope and energy about my job performance, my students, and what we might achieve through the plans I've made. However, as I get into the day, and more and more tiny hands are pulling at my clothes, more and more little people cry out, Miss Ellison, Miss Ellison! and more and more is heaped on my plate by parents, coworkers, and administration, my reserves often fail me. I might snap at a student or miss a deadline or suddenly feel besieged by doubt and anxiety about my qualifications for the job. Most days, what I had within me in the morning rapidly diminishes by the afternoon, and I'm left knowing that I am not enough. Have you ever come to realize that you are not enough? I imagine many of us have encountered our deficiencies even this week as the panic and confusion around COVID-19 have heightened and driven our country into a mad rush to get on top of things, to fill up our pantries, to hoard toilet paper. We are not of resources, but we certainly feel small before the still-to-be-seen immensity of this pandemic. We don't trust that enough has been done, that our hospital system is sufficient, or that our government is doing a proper job. We're not sure that we are prepared to face whatever might befall in the weeks to come. Nevertheless, we still have to wake up each morning, prepare our meals, pay our bills, and bring smiles to our family and to others who depend on us. Do you feel like you're at the end of what you have to give? Are you wondering how it might be possible for you to give more to get on to the next day? Well, last week, Rebecca started us off on a new series called Five Questions Jesus Asks. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus asks a total of 307 questions of the people he encounters in his ministry. In return, the people ask Jesus 183 questions, of which Jesus only answers three. Right now, when we're facing the unknown, we'd hope that Jesus would be the one answering rather than asking the questions. We certainly have a lot for him. Questions like, how will I get by without an income? How can I keep myself and my family safe? How can I be the hands and feet of Christ when I can only come within six feet of my neighbors? What will happen to our society and world in the aftermath of COVID-19? Why, God, are you allowing this to happen? In response to all our questions, Jesus has some questions of his own. And as frustrating as it might be to not get the crystal clear answer we're looking for, Jesus' questions strike at the truth of the matter. They lift the veil from our eyes and help us to see him in the fog, which is what our hearts really long for. Last week, Jesus asked us, why do you worry? This week, he asks us, will you come to my table? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would send your spirit to each of us in the places we are listening to this message. Would you connect us virtually and in the opportunities we have face-to-face that we could encounter you and have hope and be encouraged 
I ask for your power on this message, and I ask for your will to be done. Amen. So today's text comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Let's read together. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle other than the resurrection that is recounted in all of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make room for the story of how five loaves and two fish satisfied a multitude. In the resurrection, death is beaten, and here on a mountainside picnic in Bethsaida, it's hunger that's taken down. Why might this story be so important that all of the gospel writers were compelled to share it? In this miracle, Jesus tells us who he is in our need and who we can be if we choose his pasture. At the start of this passage, the, po the apostles are gathering around Jesus. They have just come back from their first mission without him, in which they set out in groups of two with authority to cast out evil spirits, heal the sick, and declare the coming of the kingdom of God. This was not some church conference or spiritual retreat from which you might return full of excitement and energy. This was more like a desert marathon or free solo trek up a mountain. Before their journey, Jesus instructed the apostles to leave with not even the barest of necessities. He said, take nothing with you, no food, no bags, no money, no, no change of clothes. Depend entirely upon the goodwill of your neighbors. Expect rejection. Be ready to shake the dust off your weary feet. Of course the apostles are returning to Jesus with stories that blow their minds, stories of healing, stories of fleeing demons and lives transformed. But we can imagine they also are very near the end of their strength, weary from their travel on foot, and hungry, not only for the taste of food and drink, but also for the comfort and counsel of their friend and healer and leader. 
The disciples have come home to the table to be fed. And what do they find? That the seats are already taken. A crowd surrounds Jesus, coming and going with more needs to be met. And the weary apostles do not have a chance to eat. We might expect Jesus to dismiss the disciples and concentrate on the crowd. At one point in the book of Matthew, when Jesus and the apostles are attempting to withdraw to rest, they are pursued by a woman crying out for help for her demon-possessed daughter. The apostles urge Jesus to send her away, but Jesus responds, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In an encounter with the Pharisees, who, su- who scorn Jesus for the time he spends with sinners, Jesus counters, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, at the height of his ministry, with a crowd of lost sheep and sinners pressing in, why would Jesus turn away from them to care for his apostles, who are already a part of his flock and have already sought the care of the doctor? Yet he does. He says to his apostles, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Jesus sees the crowd. He sees his ministry blooming. He sees the needs. But he also sees Simon, James, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. He sees his beloved. And rather than crack the whip, he calls them to himself. This is Jesus' first response to us in times of great need. He calls us to himself. He draws us near. He fixes us with his gaze. And he offers himself as the truest satisfaction of our needs. In his invitation to the apostles, Jesus models for us how to have our needs fully met in him. He says, come with me by yourselves. This is an invitation to solitude, to sitting in his presence, to being alone with him. He says, come to a quiet place. He gives us permission to shut out the noise, to walk away from the crowd, to turn away, if even just for a moment, from all the needs that surround us. He says, get some rest. When you are in need, when you are at the end of yourself, Jesus does not stand above you waiting for you to stand up. Jesus sees you. He kneels beside you, and he invites you to rest. Will you? There is another layer to this story that we need to know. In Matthew's account, before the apostles get to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples reach him and deliver the news that John has been cruelly executed at the hands of King Herod. When Jesus heard what had happened, Matthew tells us, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Jesus does not choose to move away from the crowd on behalf of his disciples alone. He withdraws for his own sake. As the apostles rush in, exhausted and hungry, and as the crowd swells, crying out for its needs to be met, Jesus is in the midst of grief. Grief for the friend who baptized him. Sorrow over he who leapt in his mother's womb when he first heard Jesus' name. Deep and sober reflection, because John, who had prepared the way for Jesus in life, was now also foreshadowing the path towards his death. Just three chapters before this story in Mark, the Pharisees witness Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath, and they are outraged. 
They leave the scene and immediately begin to plot his murder with Herod's followers. Now Jesus has learned that Herod has murdered John. How could it not cross Jesus' mind that he is next? There's no doubt that Jesus, while perceiving the needs of the disciples and the crowd around him, is also wrestling with his own needs to go before the Father, share his sorrow, and reconcile himself to his call to the cross. Who among us could be a refuge for others in our deepest grief? Yet Jesus opens his arms to the apostles. So Jesus withdraws to a remote place with his disciples, but as Mark tells us, the crowd beats them there. Throughout the book of Mark, wherever Jesus is, so is the crowd. He goes from house to house, boat to boat, and the crowd meets him everywhere he lands. At this point, Jesus has already taught the people from the water. It's no wonder that after, see, after seeing Jesus board the boat, the crowd jumps to conclusions and pursues him, knocking on doors and calling more to join them, until a mass of 15,000 or more awaits Jesus and his disciples in their so-called solitary retreat. Yes, 15,000. Mark's record of the 5,000 who were fed in this miracle only accounts for the men who were present. It is very likely that women and children accompanied them, making the crowd far greater than Mark reports. If Jesus were only human, how would he respond? Struck with the news of his friend's death, burdened by the knowledge of the suffering to come, responsible for his followers, and now faced with a rambunctious crowd, he would throw in the towel. He would cry out, no more, give me a break. I have nothing left to give. I'm finished. What does Jesus, fully human and fully God, really do? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In our need, when we are grasping for a handhold and desperately hungry, Jesus lays everything down and has compassion on us. How does he do this? Mark tells us that he begins to teach the crowd. Matthew says that he heals those who are sick. Luke says that he welcomes them. The people are physically, intellectually, relationally, and spiritually satisfied at no cost to them, but rather at the entire expense of Jesus. This is the compassion of Christ. If this is what a relationship with Jesus gives us access to, why do we go elsewhere? Why do we look in our wallets, scour the news, and test our own mettle against our circumstances? Jesus has laid down everything for us, and yet we often only reach for what is within ourselves. This is what the apostles do when the day becomes night and the hunger in their bellies turns into an ache. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? The apostles have seen the power of God at work in Jesus and through themselves. They have wandered on foot with nothing and survived. They've cast out demons. They've healed the sick. And yet, when it comes to a simple need, a day's meal, they rummage in their own pockets and come out empty-handed. 
When Jesus asks the question, how many loaves do you have? He's not wondering what more the apostles are willing to give. He is not expecting them to wring themselves dry for the multitude's lunch. No, he is looking to see if they will stay within their own realm of possibility or if they will open their eyes to the possibilities of the kingdom. Jesus searches us with the same twinkle in his eye when we are in need. He asks us a probing question. Will you come to my table? Will you come and see what I have to give? Will you look at yourself, at what your world offers? Or will you look to me and my verdant, never-ending pastures? When we come to Jesus' table, we find what we need and then some. We pull up a chair to an extravagant feast. Mark specifies that the crowd in Bethsaida sits down on green grass, a detail that soothes what was before a chaotic story. The scene of lost and wandering sheep searching for a shepherd transforms into a sacred display of communion. Jesus looks up to heaven. He gives thanks to his father. He breaks the bread and they all eat and are satisfied. I think this story appears in each of the Gospels not only because it is an outstanding miracle that one man's bread and fish become enough for 15,000. I think this story matters because it foreshadows the cross. It shows us a significant moment when Jesus, in the shadow of John's death, accepts his own. It is as though the Father brought him to the brink and wouldn't let him retreat until he embraced the task ahead of him. Jesus, in his own great need, takes up ours as well. On the mountainside in Bethsaida, as he breaks the bread for his people, he chooses to lay down his life, to break his body, and to share his abundance with us. All he asks of us in return is whether or not we will partake. How many loaves do you have? Do you really just have five? Do you not know that I have so much more and that through the cross, what's mine is also yours? How do we access God's reserves when ours are empty? Well, I recently reached the end of my reserves of love for one of my students in my class. On a moment-to-moment basis, this student puts at risk the safety of everyone in his path. He can be physically aggressive and emotionally abusive to students and staff alike and almost constantly disregards the authority of adults in his life. Months of bearing with his behaviors exhausted my patience, my empathy for his traumatic history, and my ability to see him as God's beloved son. One morning before school, it occurred to me that while my love may have run dry, God's certainly had not. I went down on my knees in prayer, and I simply asked, God, give me more love for your children. Over the days, I felt my heart turn towards the student. Before, I had seen him as the enemy of my class. And now, I began to see him as a child suffering from circumstances outside of his control. I found new patience and compassion for him blooming within me, and my hope was renewed in God's plan to liberate him and set him on a new path. All of a sudden, I had enough of what I needed to continue my work in the classroom. In your great need, when you have nothing more to give, Jesus is asking for you to take from his table. 
He is calling you to come to him as sheep come to their shepherd. For as David writes in Psalm 23, under the care of the shepherd, we are not in want. Even though we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear evil, for he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our heads with oil. At his table, our cup overflows. And goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives. Will you come to the table?